This is The Bible in Depth with PJ. Join us as we take a deeper look into scriptures and study the Word of God together. Now here is Pastor Jim. We're now in the last chapter of Matthew, and we're going to look at uh, evidence for the resurrection because this is a resurrection of Jesus Christ chapter. Now remember that um, you can share this with anyone you want to. It goes to podcasts, so if you want to hear it later, instead of on Facebook, uh, you can. Also, it goes to our NARCO, our NBCC uh, NARCO YouTube channel the next day, which is Thursday, uh, and you can watch it there also. So there's multiple channels to be able to do this, but watch this and listen to it. But this is verse-by-verse study. It's designed uh, to disciple you, to grow you more in the things of God and to understand more. Today, I'm really excited, actually, because... I get to talk about evidence for the resurrection, which uh, you've heard me say many times on Sundays, that our faith is not built on blind faith such as, oh, just believe. You just got to believe. No, it's built on evidence. And I want to talk about that today and next time also. So I'm going to cut the chapter almost in half today. Uh, and these last two sessions will be our last ones in Matthew. Then we'll move to a new book. So Matthew chapter 28. Um, And it says, now after the Sabbath, remember, Jesus now has been buried. After the Sabbath, uh, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, the first day of the week for them would be Sunday. Um, We look at that as Monday in our life. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to look at the grave. They didn't come because they expected Jesus to be alive, risen from the dead. They didn't expect it. None of the disciples expected it. Nobody thought that Jesus was coming back from the dead. But notice that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come just to look at the grave. We find the same thing in the previous chapter, 27 and verse 61. We find that they're the last ones to leave. They just sat there opposite the grave. So they leave, and then three days later they come back and they do the same thing. They're just still in mourning. They just really, really love Jesus. Now, verse 2 says, And behold, a severe earthquake uh, uh, had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now I like this, the whole sequence of events here because you and I in Southern California, we know earthquakes. We know what they feel like. We know they can hit at any time. Some of them are really a lot worse than others. They're walking in the dark early Sunday morning. So you have darkness, you have a massive earthquake. And so you put that all together and you think about application for our lives. That you know, and, and then there's no hope because in their minds, Jesus is dead. So it's dark, Jesus is dead, earthquake, things are messed up. So doesn't that happen in our life sometimes? Things can really shake us. Darkness sets in. We feel like Jesus is dead. Where are you? And yet in the midst of it all, we have an angel of the Lord. He's descending from heaven and he comes And we're going to see later, he brings the light, and he rolls the stone away. Now, what's interesting about, um, uh, uh, and by the way, the application for us is, look, guys, you and I are always going to go through something periodically, and sometimes the earthquakes are bigger than others, and the darkness is deeper than other times. But you know what? The light is still there, and Jesus is still alive. He's not dead. He's resurrected. They're walking there thinking he's dead. He's alive. says the angel rolled the stone away. Now, to really get a good um, understanding of what's going on here, if you looked at Mark chapter 4, verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 4, 
you're going to find that when Mark talks about rolling the stone away, in the Greek, he adds the, the first the word ana in front of the Greek word, and the word ana means up. And so it's telling us in Mark's gospel that the stone is rolled uphill. The thing weighs about 2,000 pounds, and they would have a groove, groove uh, carved out like a curb where the stone would roll downhill into place and sit there, and there's a groove, there's a curb here holding the place. So it was rolled back up, which is, that's not what they did in those days. So it took a supernatural event to roll the stone uphill. Isn't that something? And many times God moves supernatural in our lives in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our pain, to bring light into our life. Now verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning. Whoa! In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the earthquake, like lightning is their appearance, and his clothing white as snow. You know, it's pretty bright. So this angel is really, really lighting it up. And now watch the guards who were put in place at the end of Matthew 27 to make sure the disciples do not tamper with the, the, the tomb and steal the body and then say, well, he rose from the dead. The guards shook for fear of him because, and became like dead men. So even the guards, they're like, they're like playing possum and they're scared out of their minds because they see the angel and they see the stone roll uphill. Oh my gosh, these guys are watching it all happen, but they're, they're, they're stiff like dead men because it's crazy, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, and it's terrifying. These guys, at that time, best fighting men in the world, the best army in the world, and they're shaken like little kids. Now, it says in verse 5, The angel said to the woman, Now the angel speaks, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. I like that because they say, do not be afraid. So in his death and resurrection, do not be afraid. When Jesus was born, the angel announced, do not be afraid. And so you hold this, see this whole idea of do not be afraid. Now, before I really, really uh, get into this thing, let me just also make one more comment here. They're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. In other words, they're looking for death. You know, too many people are looking for death. Too many people are looking at the wrong things. Too many people are focusing on the negatives. Too many things, people are looking at things that are just decaying, stench, smell. Why would you want that? Why wouldn't you want life? Why wouldn't you want abundant life, the life that Jesus has to offer us? I think we should be looking for life, not for death. Now, he says, do not be afraid. Fear is a real deal. Now, I want, you to, I want you to turn in your Bibles to, um, and I have a lot of verses we're going to cover today, by the way. We're going to cross-reference. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, let's talk about this whole fear factor thing. <clears throat> he says, do not fear. And so many people around the world, Christians included, they have fear. Now, watch what uh, verse 15 of Hebrews 2 says. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let me tell you right now, fear of death is bondage. It's slavery. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, freed us from the fear of death. Especially in the day and age we live in right now with the pandemic and 
Some of you had friend, relatives and friends that have died from COVID-19. But as a believer, we've been set free from the fear of death. We've been set free from fear, period. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power loving of a sound mind. But he's rendered powerless the devil who inflicts fear upon our minds. See, uh, there are many ways to fear death, not just physical death. Some of us fear that we'll have our finances in order for retirement. Will, will I have enough? Some of you out there fear, uh, will this relationship fall apart? Will this marriage make it? You fear that's going to die. Some of us fear in this, especially right now with the pandemic and things closing down. I fear the loss of a job. I fear unemployment. I fear being laid off. There are a lot of ways to fear death. A lot of death type experiences. But let me tell you what I know from the scriptures. That no matter what fears are thrown at me, what come my way, I must stand upon what it says. Not what the popular thought is out there. Not what the news is telling me. But what does this say? And that keeps my mind clear. And that I can say God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Do not fear. Do not fear. Because Jesus is in our midst. He's in our hearts. Now, <clears throat> verse 6 of Matthew 28. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said. Now, in other words, he said, I told you guys, didn't Jesus say that he's going to rise from the dead? Look, I, I, I real, right? You, you didn't believe it? He, he's risen. And then he says, come see the place where he was lying. In other words, look at the evidence. The body's not here. We're going to look at evidence in verse 7 a lot. But first I want to make a statement about the stone being rolled away. The angels didn't roll the stone away because... To let Jesus out. It wasn't like Jesus in that tomb going, let me out, let me out. It's, it's a heavy stone. No. The angels rolled the stone so that these women and the disciples, when they come to the tomb, can see that the tomb is empty and the body is gone and they will see the resurrected Christ. They rolled the stone to show the evidence of his risen nature, of the fact of his resurrection. Not because he couldn't get out. They rolled it so we could look in, so they could be the eyewitnesses to the fact. Now, verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen. Go tell him. Go tell him he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. That's a loaded verse. We'll, finish, we'll start with that verse next time, but I want to pull something out of this verse first. Go tell him he's risen. Why is it so important that Jesus has risen from the dead? Let me tell you that what your Christianity rises and falls on. The resurrection. Paul even said, look, if there was no resurrection, we might as well eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Our whole belief system it rests on the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Never forget that. That's why it's so attacked by atheists and skeptics. 
Now, let me talk about risen and quickly how that affects you and I. Then we're going to get into the evidence. Look at Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read verse 4 through 7. Romans 6, verse 4 through 7. I can't spend a lot of time here because the bulk of what I want to talk about is coming up now. It says, therefore, in verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So something about this resurrection allows a death to my old self and a resurrection of new life with Jesus living in me, a transformation. Verse 5. For if we have become united, ooh, big word, with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Mm. Now, the word united there, cool word that Paul uses. It's the idea of taking a branch, grafting it into a tree, and once it's grafted in, now it becomes part of that tree and gets the life of that tree into the branch, and now it has life. He is saying in this verse, that we have been united with Jesus in the likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. We've been grafted in, into him. What does that mean? That means the life of Jesus, once we put our faith in him through his death and resurrection, we have new life. It's flowing through us. We can walk in transformed living. The power of the old nature has been busted. And in verse 6, he goes on to say this, knowing this, once you know this, that our old self, you know the old self that wants to sin in you, right? Was crucified with him. Whoa, what? Yes, once I put my faith in Jesus, I'm crucified with him. In order that our body of sin might be done away. That's interesting. Done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, in verse 6 when he says, in this whole transaction of grafting in, we died with him on the cross. That our old nature is done away. Mm, you know what it means? Powerless. My old nature, through my uniting with him, I'm grafted in. My old self has died. It's powerless, paralyzed, cannot force me to do anything. And there's a new life flowing through me, the life of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could boldly say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life of Jesus is flowing through you now as a byproduct of your faith and your following of him. You're grafted in, baby. There's new life flowing through you. Now, Matthew chapter 28, verse 7, he says, He is risen. Okay, now, I want to really get into this now. Evidence for the resurrection. So I have a lot of notes, and so I'll be looking at these notes. Um, not easy to memorize a lot of this stuff, but I try my best. Why would we believe? What's the evidence for the resurrection? Well, first off, they claimed he rose from the dead and appeared to them. Now, the testimony of Paul... <clears throat> about the disciples seeing Jesus is an evidence. The oral tradition passed by the church is an evidence. The writings of the early church that he rose from the dead is an evidence. But let's examine these things in a more specific way. Okay, first things first. Let's examine what Paul said because Paul met and fellowshiped with the big three, Peter, James, and John. 
and he says certain things about them and about the risen Jesus. So turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and follow closely. And you might want to share this with somebody who is a skeptic. And I'm only going to get into so many things today. And by the way, I take this from scholars, not bloggers. Bloggers have no scholarly education. There are too many people online giving their thoughts and have no clue what they are talking about. You see this all over our country. People don't know anything anymore, and they just don't because they've never studied the true things. And here's a true thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 8 says, and we're going to go back and forth to these verses. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, whoa, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, this is Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What has Paul just said? He's saying, I saw the risen Jesus, and I'm writing about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Look in verse 10 and verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 15. Watch what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Uh, Paul says, I saw Jesus. I've talked to some people that saw him resurrected. Paul says, and because of that, I labored more than anyone else to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, somebody's going to argue with me and say, well, you can't trust the Bible. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. First off, if they say you can't use the Bible, understand they will use the Bible against you. So don't ever be afraid to use the Bible. The other thing you need to know is that not me, but scholars, and I've read the scholars, and I love reading the scholars. I love listening to the scholars. <clears throat> Both Christian and atheist and skeptic New Testament scholars, Paul is their darling. They love the guy. They love him. <clears throat> they believe him. They accept 1 Corinthians 15, legitimate book. Paul wrote it. They accept five other New Testament letters that Paul wrote <clears throat> because they know he was a scholar. They know he writes as a scholar, and they know his life took an abrupt change. It's a fact. Atheist, skeptic, and Bible-believing scholars accept this. The atheists and the skeptics, they believe the tomb is empty. They just don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's the difference between the scholars. But they accept the book and they accept the writings. They, Paul did see something. We know as believers, he saw the risen Christ. Now, Back up in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. Watch this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that... Now watch. Let me read it now. That Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You know what that is right there? Write it in your Bible. Write it down. This is an ancient creed, and this is called the creedal argument right here. Now, <clears throat> this is part of the earliest, earliest church people's tradition, and this little creed statement here predates the writing of Paul. Paul writes it because this thing was given to him. Scholars agree on both sides that Paul received this creed from Peter and James and the gang when he visited them three years after his conversion. Because we know timetable-wise, Paul writes that he went there <clears throat> so three years after conversion, some around 36 AD. Now stop and think about that. Paul learns of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he gets his creedal argument within five years, and then he gets it from the disciples himself. Five years! This is the type of stuff that historians drool over, that you can get eyewitness, testimony, multiple writers, that this happened within five years of the event? Yeah. And remember, all four gospel writers... They attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they write about it within 70 years of the event, all within the first century. That's close. You say, no, it is not 70 years later, some of them. Wait a minute here. I, I, I shared this a couple years ago on Easter Sunday. Alexander the Great, do we know a lot about it? Yeah, we have writings. Do you know when those things were written? 350 to 400 years after he died. And we say, oh, yeah, there, we, can, we can count on that. But, but, but wait, you write 70 years about Jesus' resurrection. No, we can't take that. Yes, you can. It's even more credible than writings about Alexander the Great. They just don't want to accept these things. Now, so they claimed it. The second thing is they believed it. Now, <clears throat> the disciples, think about the transformation to the point that they endure persecution and a torturous death. Stop. Compare that to these same disciples when Jesus is taken in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's arrested. What did they do? They ran and hid in fear. They ran and hid in fear. <clears throat> and now we see they're as bold as lions in the book of Acts. The African church father, Tertullian, around 200 AD, says, writes that Paul was crucified. And I'm sorry, Peter was crucified and Paul was beheaded by Nero. Why would they die for a lie? Why would they die for make-believe? And like, and like I like to say, some of you may, they're going to tell you, well, a lot of people strap on bombs and die for what they believe. Yeah, for what they believe that somebody else told them. These guys, they died martyrs' deaths, not for what they believed, but what they saw. They evidenced it. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's a big difference, my friends. So there's another evidence. The disciples believed it. They died martyrs' deaths. The third thing is Paul's conversion. Let's go back to that again. Let's go to um, Acts um, chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> and, and I may not read the whole thing, but it's just to go there in Acts 9, verse 1 through 9, we have the conversion of, of Paul. And it's written here by Dr. Luke. And it says uh, in verse 1, Now Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. 
and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus, Damascus is modern day the Golden Heights. <clears throat> so that if he found any belonging to the way, if I find any Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Whoa. Paul claims that he, that he saw the risen Jesus. You find it also in Acts 22 and in Acts 29. You find the same things. He claims he saw him. Well, Jim, that's Luke writing. Okay, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Watch this. This is Paul writing. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Remember, they conclude Paul is a scholar. They conclude what Paul had an experience. And here it is in, in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? He says, I've seen him, guys. I've seen him. <clears throat> His belief that he saw Jesus was so strong that like the original disciples, he was willing to suffer a martyr's death because he saw Jesus. That's an evidence right there. Another eyewitness. Here's another one. The brother of Jesus is suddenly changed. Huh? Now, first off, before anybody tells you, oh, they, you know, he didn't have a brother. Come on, that's ridiculous. Josephus, the historian, writes in history, and here's what he says. He mentions the brother of Jesus, who is called the Christ, whose name was James. Josephus says Jesus had a brother named James. Now, watch this. Turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, Watch it, verse, verse 21, Mark 3, uh, verse 21, and it says, I love this stuff. Oh, yeah, I wait so long to get to these sections to talk about this stuff. Now watch what he says in verse 21. It says, when his own people, meaning Jesus' family, yeah, he had brothers and sisters and his mom was still alive. Mary didn't stay a virgin her whole life. He had brothers and sisters. After Jesus was born, she got married and she started having other babies. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, this is what their family members are saying about Jesus. He has lost his senses. Do they believe he's the Messiah, God in the flesh? No. <laughs> and then look in verse 31. That's why verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. In other words, we need to talk to our, our boy here, your brother, my son, because he is out of his mind. And then something happens. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Jim, we've been there a couple of times. Yep, and it's worth going back again. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus dies and rises from the dead. James doesn't believe his brother's the Messiah. He didn't believe it at all. And then he appears to him. 
Can you imagine that first face-to-face -face interaction when Jesus says to his brother James, bro, it's me. It's your brother Jesus. <laughs> oh my gosh. That probably shook him to the core. You are the Messiah. You are this person. And James converts to Christianity, and James, in Acts 15, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And historians write that James, the brother of Jesus, died a martyr's death. He believed it. He was an eyewitness. He, at one time, he didn't believe at all. But then when he saw his brother resurrected, oh my gosh, he believed it. But let me give you one more today, and that is going back to the whole idea there in Matthew 28, the testimony of women. They are told, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary told, go back and tell everybody about it. Now, this is crazy. Having women as the first testifiers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ would totally hurt the credibility of the resurrection. Both Jews and Romans in, the, in that time, in that day and age, they viewed women in such low esteem they regarded their testimony as just questionable. <clears throat> you know what they thought? The Jews thought that a woman's testimony was the same as the testimony of a robber. <laughs> Crazy, huh? That's why in Luke 24, watch this, in Luke 24, verse 10 and 11, watch, watch, it says, now they were, <clears throat> this is in the, after the resurrection, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James, also other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. Hey, he's risen from the dead. All these ladies are saying it. Verse 11. But these words appeared to them, appeared to the disciples, appeared to the men as nonsense. That tells you right there the disciples didn't even believe he was rising from the dead. Why would they try to steal the body if they didn't believe he was rising from the dead? Nonsense, and they would not believe him. You know what the word nonsense, the Greek word that Luke uses there? It literally means idle talk, nonsense, and humbug. <laughs> Here's the point. If you're trying to fabricate a resurrection of Jesus Christ, you would have never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever in that day started off the testimony of his resurrection by women. You just wouldn't have done it. You would have used men. But since they used women, God used women, and they wrote it as fact. This is called the principle of embarrassment. This is a fact. This is a principle historians use. Here's what the principle of embarrassment means. What is written would have been embarrassing to the author. Therefore, it's likely to be true. It's likely to be true. So I've given you five, with a lot of little things in between, reasons why we believe the evidence is there that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a lot more. I'll give you more next time. But I'm going to pause right here and let you sit, about, sit on that and think about it. But remember, we don't have a blind faith. There's evidence that Jesus rose from the dead and our, all of our faith 
rests on that fact, on that fact, that he rose from the dead, that he rose from the dead. Amen. And he gives us new life. Well, I'm going to pause right there and I'll finish off the book of Matthew next time. So, hey, God bless you. We'll see you later. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or need prayer, please send us an email to hello at nbcc.com. We'd love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and take a second to rate it. Until then, we'll see you next time.